Welcome to Scaling Alberta Businesses, Innovate MRU's podcast that focuses on the startup and scale-up stories of Alberta-born companies. I'm Ray DePaul, the Director of the Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Mount Royal University. On this episode, we continue our conversation with Zach Hartley, co-founder of Burgundy Oak, as he tells us about some of their most pivotal moments, their time in the Dragon's Den, and what lies ahead. So you've grown from $50,000 in your first year to over a million in your fourth year. As you look back on that, can you talk maybe a bit about a few of the inflection points? What happened to kind of spur that sales growth? So it's uh, Burgundy Oaks kind of evolved. Um, we started out selling direct to consumer at markets and trade shows, and then we picked up our first store, um, Stonewaters in Canmore, in 2016, and they were basically the first store that started selling our products in their location direct to consumer. And so what was cool about that was that was our first test of, okay, a store can actually move this product, they can sell it, and they make enough margin on it to want to place another order with us. So that was that was the first test of the wholesale business model. And that test went well. So from that point on, we started trying to pick up more and more small slash medium sized furniture stores. And luckily we saw some success with that. We slowly grew in, in Western Canada and a couple in Ontario where these small medium sized stores would place orders for us. And then we had a couple of big inflection points. One was Nick, uh, Nick White, our business partner, landed home hardware. So he got our products into home hardware um, stores. About five or six stores picked us up first. They were all uh, independently owned. And now we're in about 110 stores. So we're doing really well there. But those first five stores that picked up our product, they moved through some of it. They placed a reorder with us. That was big. That was the first big box store that could actually place orders with us, move through product, and that we could work with because it was small individual stores placing the order. But it was larger and larger orders all going through home hardware corporate. So that was a really interesting setup for us where it was like, okay, we may have just graduated. We may have just gone from small and medium-sized stores to we've got our first box store. We've got our first big player. Can we execute it? And can we get another one? And so what was really interesting is we filled those first five orders, and then we had a couple more keep coming. And our next big inflection point came with production. At that time, we were outsourcing all of our production to wood shops around town. We had about five different shops that were building products for us and then bringing them back to a warehouse where we would ship them out. That was great for scaling up and because I couldn't build everything anymore. But the problem was quality and logistics. We couldn't maintain consistent quality amongst manufacturers and the logistics to get them barrels and to get finished product back to us was an absolute nightmare. And that was when we kind of realized that we needed to make a change to our operations. And so since then, we've completely vertically integrated everything. So now at Burgundy Oak, I personally buy the barrels, we store them at our location, we manufacture everything in-house, we store the finished product there, and we ship it across Canada and the United States. So we are a completely vertically integrated operation. What allow, that allows me to do is control all of my pricing, eliminate any logistics in between those stages, and have a better and quicker turnaround in production time, as well as eliminate quality control issues when they come up. So if all of a sudden one system or one style of less on a table doesn't work, I can adapt that, I can change it, I can let everybody that builds them know, and we can implement that change in 20 minutes. So that was a big inflection point, and that is what has propelled our growth ever since. Because now that I control production, I can hire temporary workers if we need to, I can scale up, I can build custom products, I can rent out the barrels, I can 
expand my business drastically more than just adding on another subcontractor to build product. So that was huge for us. We basically took back all control of our operations. So was the home hardware deal, did that give you the confidence to invest in that kind of a change? Yes, it gave us the sales, which gave us confidence. It gave us volume, which said, okay, it's starting to make sense to because I'm outgrowing the subcontractors. So it gave us confidence because it gave us sales. But the other thing it gave us was a risk. For instance, if home hardware gets X amount of returns, I have to pay for them. And so quality control became extremely, extremely important, especially if a store in Ontario picks up a liquor cabinet from us that they plan to resell. If there's damage to that liquor cabinet or something happens to it, it's $200 to send it back here, and that's probably my profit on it. So quality became extremely important, and then we had the sales to facilitate that expansion. Now, we did test it out, though. We had an office that was 1,500 square feet, and we had five of us working working out of there and a little bit of warehouse space. I hired Nick's little cousin to come in and he was fresh out of high school and I hired him to come in and build product. And the test was if if I can hire a kid fresh out of high school to build our product and I can meet our numbers or beat our cost numbers from the suppliers, then this is probably going to make sense. And it turns out after a week and a half, two weeks of training and, and a little bit of practice, this 16 or 18 year old kid fresh out of high school was able to build all of our products. And at that point it was like, okay, we've tested this out. We've tried it. Now let's execute on this. Let's scale up. Let's go get a real facility and bring all of our production in-house. And I love that notion of testing, you know, any time you can reduce the yeah. risk w- without, you know, obviously you, you could spend your entire life trying to reduce it to zero, but uh, just the, the value of, of before jumping, making sure you've... Uh, yeah. And, and, and I've seen two people upgrade a production facility without testing it out since I've done that. And, and it's a scary thing. For instance, I pay $6,000 a month in rent right now. And the last thing you want to do is go lease a place with that kind of rent and then realize the numbers didn't add up. That is a, that is a gut feeling that you don't want to have. Clearly, yeah, home hardware, good inflection point. Um, yeah. But you've maintained good relationships with the stores you had. What was uh, another inflection point that happened for you guys? Yeah, so we picked up our first big box store and then we brought production in-house and that was kind of what facilitated growth from there. And then I'd say one of the big things that's happened recently, one was Dragonstan and then two was the Jack Daniels deal. So this was was really interesting for us. We had been invited to a conference called the Cult Gathering out in Banff. And we went there and one of the keynote speakers was the VP of marketing from Jack Daniels. And so at that conference, we basically... He was the keynote speaker and we walked up to him afterwards when he was getting a drink and we said, hey, how's it going? We've got something kind of interesting. We build barrels and we build products out of uh, wine barrels at the moment and we'd love to work with you on some whiskey barrels. And he said, okay, let's go for lunch tomorrow and we'll have a chat. So he clearly wasn't the right guy. He was the marketing guy, but he wrote us a couple of emails where he introduced us to the people that handle licensing and handle the barrels. And about six months later, we were able to lock down a licensing contract between Bergen Yoke and Jack Daniels, 42nd ever licensee and the only one in Canada. And we have Jack Daniels full support to build products, a variety of products from their used whiskey barrels. And so when the, uh, when the time comes and the barrels are ready to be emptied, Jack Daniels empties the barrels, bottles the whiskey, and loads up a sea container full of empty barrels and ships it out to us here at Burgundy Oak. We store them in inventory and then convert them into a full line of furniture and decor. And so what's really unique about the Jack Daniels line from a business perspective is strategic advantage. 
we we started out with wine barrels and I was building them in my mom's garage. Now you can buy a wine barrel online. You can get it on Kijiji for 150 or 200 bucks, and almost anybody can make products like what we do if they have the right tools. So the barrier to entry on our standard product line is very low, and there's a couple competitors that aren't at the same scale as us, but are trying to do what we're doing. But the licensing deal with Jack Daniels is unique because it's a complete strategic advantage. We now get their barrels at a lower cost than I buy wine barrels for. We have every right to use their branding, their logo, all of their imagery, and we have a brand name behind us now. And so what's really unique is we're building products from the wine barrels. That is our core business and what we started with. We've taken all of the best sellers and our current operations integrated in the Jack Daniels product line, and we've seen a pretty significant increase in growth. It's been, uh, that's been a really unique thing for us. It's a complete strategic advantage. Nobody can copy it. It's been excellent for logistics because we already have all the manufacturing and everything set up to work on barrels. And now we've got a brand and a reputation and uh, a little bit of fun and excitement uh, tied into Burgundy Oak. And we're running with that pretty hard, especially going into Stampede here. So last year, Burgundy Oak was featured on an episode of Dragon's Den. That must have been a surreal experience. Dragon's Den is wild. It is crazy experience. Um, first of all, what you see on the TV show is not what it's actually like. It's totally different, but it was really cool. Um, so we get there, we land in Toronto, and you got to fly out there. You got to send your pallets of product. We sent everything out. And my my stuff's big. It's like big wine barrels, right? So it wasn't a small display. So we get there, and the booth or like the set of Dragon's Den. You think it's in a warehouse, like somewhere on the outskirts of downtown? No, it's dead center downtown. 30 floors up in one of the towers, and it is this massive, giant warehouse. I cannot imagine how much it must cost to run that basically giant studio. It blew me away. So dead center downtown Toronto, 30 floors up in the studio. You get there at 7 a.m. They bring in like eight or nine pitches for the morning, and then they bring in another eight, eight to ten pitches for the afternoon. The Dragons do 20 days of pitching. And then uh, that's it for the season. So they're only there for 20 days, and they go through like 200 or 220 pitches, and only 94 even make it on the air. And then you get like 10 or 15 deals, whatever it is. So really interesting experience. We were the first one up to go that day. So we get there at like 7. We're upstairs by 8. They've kind of got our product set up, and we were going to roll it in from the side. And so how it starts is you're basically walking up these scary, rickety wood steps on the side of uh, the stage. And then you walk, they say, okay, action, all the lights come down and you walk down that hallway, just like you see on the TV show and you walk down the stairs. That part was really cool because you're like walking down and it's literally just the five dragons staring at you. So we loved that part. That was cool. You get down there and then you say, hey, my name is Zach. Our company's Bergen Yoke. We're here to ask for $150,000 for 10% is what we asked for. And then you give them basically a one or two minute pitch and you have to kind of script that out with the producers beforehand. So that's not very authentic. It's kind of scripted out so it's consistent. And then as soon as your pitch is done, it's a total free for all. Like these dragons, what was interesting is they are on the show for publicity just as much as we were. So like they want to be on this show and get as much recognition and as much questions on air so that they can charge more for speaking events or do better for their company later on or so that Boston Pizza gets more advertising. Now, they're there for the right reasons, but that's one of the big benefits for them. So as soon as we're done our pitch, everybody just blurts in and asks, starts rapid firing asking questions and nobody really knows how, like who to answer or what to do. So 
we kind of settled down and then for 40 45 50 minutes we just got completely grilled like questions from every judge on every aspect of the business anything they wanted to know we basically had to front it out and and give them all of the information and so they asked us like fairly in-depth questions they didn't dive into anything too particular but it was 45 minutes of business professionals asking real life business questions now unfortunately it gets cut to most of the surface level questions for the show but they went in and and asked us the real questions how much we make what's the equity split what's the plans what are you projecting for profits like they went in and dove into all that so that was really interesting so we get 45 50 minutes into the pitch and then they start running out of questions and they're all kind of looking around like okay let's let's wrap this up let's see who's in and see who's out and uh, it did not go well for us to start. So first guy, Vincenzo Guzzo, he runs some movie theaters in Quebec or Montreal, and uh, and he's out. He's just like, guys, I love it. Can't help you. I'm out. Like real blunt and honest, and he's just he just goes right out. And we're like, oh, geez, okay. And then Arlene Dickinson was next, and she she's based out of Calgary a little bit. So we're like hoping this this is this could be good for us. And uh, she gives us like, hey guys, love what you're doing, but I'm out. Like, not my thing, I'm out. And we're like, oh no, this this isn't good. So we're down two dragons. Manjeet comes up and she goes, um, okay, like what you're doing, this is cool. I might be interested, we'll see how it goes. And then Lane Merrifield, um, one of the other dragons, comes in and he's totally out as well. And we're like, oh gosh, okay. So we've got like three dragons out right now, one's a maybe, and we go to the other side. And Jim Living gives us exactly what we asked for. And we're like, oh, okay, we're, we're back in this. All right, we've got at least an offer here. We're not going away empty-handed. So that was good. That was a show of confidence. And then Michelle Romano gave us basically what we asked for, plus a, a royalty and a, and basically a payback schedule. So not as good. And she wanted a couple of strings attached to it. So like, okay, geez, this is, uh, this is interesting. And then uh, right at the end, we let them know that we were probably going to be working with Jack Daniels. We hadn't quite closed the deal yet. So we just kind of teased him with it, being like, hey, this is in the works and this is what our plans are for it. And Manjeet really perked up at that one. She kind of got her back in the game. And same with Arlene. Arlene peaked up at some interest at that. And so we're trying to negotiate just a little bit more, see if we can get them back in. And uh, we go to the back room to talk about Michelle and Jim's offers. So we go to the like back little hidden room where everybody makes a phone call. We start talking about it. And all of a sudden, Manjeet bursts in. And she goes, hold on, guys. We got a revised offer. And it was Manjeet, Lane Merrifield, and Arlene Dickinson for $250,000 for 15% of the company. So more than what we had asked for, a better valuation. And she barged into the door in the back to basically present us with that. And uh, we're like, okay, wow, geez. Now everybody's in except Vince after it started absolutely terrible. So we start talking about and we're like, okay, this could be good, especially if we can get three dragons. It's probably going to be more support. And so we went back. Um, we went back out. We talked about it, um, and we said, Manjeet, we'd love to accept your offer with Lane and Arlene. And so we shook hands on a deal for 250k for 15%. And then we basically got a sheet of paper that had Manjeet's assistant's email on it that said, "Send your financials in, and we'll get back to you." And nice. that was, uh, and then a $25 gift card to Boston Pizza. <laughs> Yeah, so that was good. So we went to BP's after and and got a meal and then packed up our stuff. And I think we stayed in Toronto for a day and then came back. Wow. So even though you're looking to expand across the world, uh, mm-hmm. you're doing it all from here in Calgary. Can you share what the, some of the advantages and the challenges of, of building a, effectively a furniture home decor company in Calgary? Yeah, so the challenges of building a furniture and home decor company in Calgary. 
The number one is price. There's a lot of competitors and companies that can build their product in cheaper locations um, with lower quality materials. And so we we compete on value and our story and the fact that our barrels are authentic. They're made by hand in Canada. They come with a certificate of authenticity and we try to help convey that story and the history of the barrel as much as possible to the consumer. So price is a challenge, but we try to overcome it with a couple different strategies. The other challenges of Calgary is like labor's labor's just in general fairly expensive in Calgary. It's not a cheap place to do it. It's not a cheap place to operate or run a business um, with regards to taxes and different things like that. But what Calgary is great at is the support system and the support that the city has in all different areas. So for instance, Burgundy Oak has now been through the Mount Royal Launchpad Accelerator course, a ATBX accelerator, a District Ventures accelerator, and a international um, exporting accelerator. So we've been through plenty of resources for learning and developing our skills. We've gathered tons of funding from Mount Royal, from IRAP, and from various other sources. We've got a bank that's willing to lend a very large amount of money to a couple of 24-year-olds. And we've got a ton of great networks and mentors and people that would just generally want to help us out here in Calgary. So the business community and the business environment here in Calgary is absolutely amazing. And there's tons of resources as long as you just put your name out there. It's just not the cheapest place to do business. And there's nothing wrong with that. You want to, we want to pay our employees and everybody that works at Burgundy Oak a living wage, a good wage, and a wage that they're proud of. And so we don't want to be the uh, the cheapest in the industry by any means, but it is something we have to compete with. The uh, So Jack Daniels, is this your first foray into the U.S. or have you had U.S. customers all along? Um, so we had a couple of U.S. customers at the in the summer of 2017. We did a trade show in Las Vegas and we picked up about 30, 30 to 40 customers down there. And we've maintained those customers, but the trick is, is the U.S. is a whole nother ball game, especially if shipping is a factor for you. So, for instance, my products are fairly large, and they don't have a super high dollar value. So, for instance, a cabinet's a thousand dollars, but it takes up a full pallet. If you loaded that same pallet with iPhones, it's probably a million dollar pallet. Um, so that's a challenge for me. And so shipping to the United States on an order of two or three thousand dollars makes a lot of sense and there's no problems there. But if somebody places a reorder for three or five hundred dollars worth of product and I have to send a pallet down, then shipping becomes really expensive. So we have about 30 or 40 stores in the U.S. right now, maybe a couple more than that. Um, the U.S. isn't a huge priority for us, though. With the Jack Daniels license, we signed uh, signed that for two years in Canada. And if it goes well, we'll have an option, hopefully, to extend it into the United States. So for the next two years, Canada is the full priority, and that lines up with the contract. And if we can expand Jack Daniels into the United States with the ability to sell online, we think that'll be um, a major, major milestone and a huge opportunity for us. When you go to the U.S. In, in larger volumes, which it sounds yeah. like the logistics require it and the shipping costs, will that dictate the kind of partners you have to look for? Will you be looking for large wholesale partners down there? Yeah, it's definitely going to be um, a combination and the products might split up as well. So, for instance, if there's certain products that sell really well online but not necessarily in stores, we might only allow that. Um, but there will be specific partners that we want to set up with. So. Total Wines in the United States is a big one for us. There's a, several large, very large furniture stores, Ashley Furniture being one of them, um, that we'd like to see our products in. But the big opportunity in the United States and, and globally, we think, is going to be the Jack Daniels brand. 
So being able to sell those products um, into the United States where, where their brand's most reputable and then across into Europe and possibly China as well, we think are going to be big markets. So I love this notion, um, as hard as you've worked to build your brand in Canada, mm-hmm. um, that really doesn't translate when you go to any other geography, oh, yeah. your personal brand. So it sounds like you're leveraging, you'll hope to leverage a Jack Daniels brand, which does have international recognition to open those doors. Yeah, definitely. Um, the branding side of it's really difficult. Like for us to build a brand in Calgary is is achievable because we can go to all these trade shows, we can get out there in front of people, we can kind of dominate an online Calgary marketplace. To to expand that across Canada is um, more difficult, but but we can get the name out there pretty good. We can go to Toronto, we can go to different shows, and, and we can hit most of our stores across Canada. But to do that in another country is just a whole nother ball game, especially the U.S. where it's 10 times the size of here, or China where it's four times the size of the U.S. It's um, it's a whole nother ball game. So no, our brand means absolutely nothing in the United States. It's done pretty well in Calgary, and we've got some recognition here. But in the U.S., it doesn't get us um, very far. And so partnering up with a Jack Daniels or um, partnering up with major retailers and being their exclusive distributor or specifically focusing on specific distributors and and maintaining those is going to be the key strategy going down into the U.S. Um, we do think there's opportunity to sell online in the U.S., but it's, uh, it's a testing game more so than anything. It's a tricky thing to sell furniture and decor online because a lot of people want to feel the product, especially if it's a custom, unique, or niche piece that's not an out-of-the-box standard assembly kind of piece. It's, um, we've, we've found more challenging to sell online. W- would you look at uh, distribution centers in the U.S.? Or uh, I'm just thinking through one of your biggest challenges sounds like shipping yeah. costs. Is, is there a future where you have... Um, East Coast, West Coast, they're holding on to product to, to ship to the U.S.? Or Yeah, so um, we're working on this project a little bit right now, um, and there's a couple of different options. So one of the options could be um, exactly what you said, a distribution center on East Coast and West Coast where they basically go up and down the coast, and I just make sure that they're fulfilled with or stocked with inventory. We could do a fulfillment center somewhere central. Um, could work as well. The other thing we've looked at is consolidated shipments. So sending down one either full truck or less than truckload shipment each week that then gets dispersed once it hits Montana or a distribution center so that I only pay customs and one shipping to get it into the U.S. and then we can take advantage of U.S. shipping rates. Um, So there's a couple different options like that. The other um, item that we've looked at is just setting up a small small warehouse distribution center of our own couple thousand dollars a month where we can send one truck down each month to replenish it and then distribute from there but there's a couple more um, legal and logistic requirements with that once you have a building and an employee in the U.S. And you're waiting to pull the trigger on this for the Jack Daniels brand is that is that kind of the thing that's sitting out there as our enabler? Yeah I think we'll definitely um, wait on the volume um, the volume will be the uh, the enabler. If I have the volume and I can justify it and I can put it into an Excel sheet and say we save money by going with this option, that's definitely going to be number one. So if we if we break even or we lose a little bit of money shipping to the U.S. with Jack Daniels in the beginning just to gather that data, I'm okay with that. We've got enough of a float to get through that. Um, but it's a test. And it really comes down to what are the financial metrics, how long does it take to get to the customer, and if I have an issue in shipping, can it be resolved? And those are kind of the three factors that we're looking at. And the more control we have, the better, especially with our products, but it's it's more expensive as well. So it's it's kind of a tricky thing. Um, we still need to negotiate the U.S. expansion with Jack Daniels, so that definitely comes first. 
Um, and if we can lock that down and secure that, we'll go into preparation for the U.S. expansion. But we've also got a couple other opportunities as well. We've got a distributor in the Netherlands that is interested in our products and, um, and a couple other larger customers that are international as well. So obviously growth ambitions moving forward. Um, anything you foresee as, as challenges in the next year, two, three, that uh, you're already anticipating and trying to get ahead of? Yeah. So when we started out, I basically hired all my friends and, and our co-founders. We all, we all kind of either knew each other or grew up together. And so we're kind of going from that stage where it's a startup where you've got your network and you just bring everybody in. And if something goes wrong, you can kind of just deal with it or push it under the rug. And now we're an actual company. And we've got outside employees and we have WCB and we've got protocols and we've got things like that. And so um, the next challenge for me specifically and for our company is setting it up so that it's not a startup anymore. It's not a fly-by-night, raggedy little startup. We have policies and if somebody wants to go on vacation, they can fill this out. If somebody gets hurt, this is how we handle it. I got to do a fire drill at the shop here soon. Um, so, so things like that so that employees have a path forward when they sign on with us. They know what the next step is for us. They know what their, uh, they'll be able to make it their position and what the next position is for them. They'll know if they'll be able to buy that home and, and have a kid. And, and we want to be able to support that and make sure that our employees are set up for that. So my big challenge over the next little while is making sure that the company's properly set up for long-term growth and making sure that our customers and the end consumers are happy with the product they're getting. People people it really is it's a people game because when you're when you're a founder you can do absolutely everything and it's if you want to turn this into anything you're doing into something big you're not going to be able to do it on your own and by the time you have one or two people they're going to be able to do much more than you ever could and if you can just make sure that they're operating as efficiently and happily as possible that's where my time is best spent because it's going to be so much more efficient as a company if I just support everybody else and they execute their job properly than me trying to do it. And finally, uh, a lot of our listeners are probably sitting there starting companies, um, debating whether they should start a company. What kind of advice would you give a, a first-time entrepreneur? Do it. Like, definitely do it, but test it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with starting a company and then wrapping it up a month later if it doesn't work. Like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So if you have an idea or you have something in the back of your mind or you've got a, something going on, go and test it. You don't even need to tell anybody about it. Just go and make it and take it to a market. Take it to the evening market in Inglewood. Take it to the Spruce Meadows market. There's so many places to interact with consumers like what I did in my first year that if you have an idea or a product or a software or anything that you're inkling towards, Go and do it and test it out. And if it doesn't work, wrap it up in a month and forget about it and never talk about it again with any of your friends and nobody's ever going to bring it up again. But if you have something that you want to do, then go do it. And the reason is not because it's going to be a success because it's probably going to be a failure, but because you're going to learn so damn much from it. You'll learn so much about what it means to start a company, how you actually launch a product, how you interact with consumers, how to set up a company and how to actually execute. So... Even if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter because the lessons that you learn in the first one month, three months, or six months of your business are going to be so much value to you in the long term that if you have to tell your mom that the company you started three weeks ago went bankrupt, it's not a big deal. 
perfect place to end on. So thanks, uh, Zach, so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Burgundy Oak is just one of many companies that have started in Alberta and are scaling beyond our borders. Join us next time to hear another inspiring Alberta-born story. This episode was produced by Joanne Horwood and Ben Goodman, and the music provided by Broke for Free. I'm Ray DePaul. Thanks for listening.